1: Welcome to our show today. I'm Nate Johnson, the producer and graduate assistant for the Gortney Institute. Today on our show, we have Dr. Russ McCullough, the founder of the Gortney Institute and Wayne Angel Chair of Economics. We also have Dr. Justin Clark, the Menard Family Professor of Philosophy and Ethics. And finally, we have Dr. Peter Jacobson, the Gortney Professor of Economic Education and Research.
0: All right. Well, it's good to have the crew back together or partially back together. We've got a couple sitting remote here between Peter and Justin, but Nate and I are in the office and good to get get back together here in 2022. And so on that note, Dr. Clark thought it'd be fun to do some sort of prediction. And so as an economist, I'm very comfortable doing that because nobody expects us to be right at least more than 50% of the time, kind of like the the weather guessers. And so why not have an episode where we kind of explore, you know, what's going on, I guess, as of today, here in January, and where we think we'll be by December, and maybe even further out than that, because we got a lot of things going on this year with the Omicron continuing on in various fashions and and, uh, some elections coming up. So I don't know, I think we should start off with Justin, since he's the one who brought this topic up. What were the burning things you're thinking about, Justin?
2: I guess one of the reasons I thought about this topic was because I tried to cast my mind back to this point last year and think about where I thought we'd be at this point today. And I think we're someplace very different than I thought we'd be. I thought that the Biden administration coming in, I thought they were going to do something like impose a 100-day mask mandate, which they said they were going to do. Um, And then I thought they were going to ride the natural decrease in Corona cases, which always comes every spring. And they were going to say, see, our policy worked. Therefore, we're done. We're out of the weeds. Corona is over and everyone can get back to work. But uh, interestingly, that didn't happen. And it seems like maybe they tried to push that a little bit. And what seemed to have happened is that a lot of the people i mean the populace who has been sold on this being a generation the you know crisis of a generation really objected when they tried to even uh, re, uh, reduce mass mandates even a little bit over the summer and so i think that this is going to be a really big issue this year because now we have data coming in that omicron is a much less severe than like alpha or delta, but you still see this playing out where, for instance, the Chicago's teachers union is threatening to go on strike and not start the school year. And so we have a lot of entrenched constituencies that are demanding that we not go back to normal. And we also have a an administration that I think knows, especially going into a midterm year, we need the economy to at least get back to some semblance of normalcy if they want to keep their majority and you know not get absolutely destroyed in the midterm. So uh, my prediction for this year is I, th- I think there's going to be a lot of tension that we see, and I think we can see it right now with the you know, this attempts to k- kind of change the narrative around Omicron and the resistance to the changing of that narrative. And to me, both of those forces are really coming from the same side of the aisle. And so it'll be interesting to see who wins out. My fear is that the, the keep everything shut down side is going to win just because I do think that right now they have the numbers and they they also have two years of the biggest crop propaganda campaign on earth behind them. So if I had to predict, I'd say we are still in some kind of lockdown-ish situation in a lot of states. I still think there'll be cases like Florida and some of the Dakotas or whatever, where things are pretty much back to normal and ever since. But I, I do think that there are going to be states like, for instance, New York and California, where we're, there are still severe COVID measures going into next this time next year. That's my that's my prediction. And it's also my worst uh, bad case scenario. So Just that one, was really long.
0: Yeah, One Sorry. clarification, would would that be that relative to the what they're doing today, like California today, New York today, that... Next year will be worse than what they're already doing today, that they'll continue to clamp down harder or that they'll maintain whatever their status quo is? I would say probably
2: around the status quo today, maybe a little bit less even, but even that seems to me to be wildly disproportionate. Like in New York right now, they are requiring vaccine passes for five year olds to eat in a restaurant and they will (laughs) evict you they will call the police to evict you if your five-year-old does not have a vaccine passport. So I'm not sure what, you know, what worse looks like, but uh, (laughs) even a continuation of these policies seems to be to be absolutely insane. But I don't, barring some kind of really um, extreme electoral mashup, I'm, I'm not sure I see that happening.
3: Peter, what are your thoughts? I think I'm probably a little more optimistic than Justin on the COVID front for policy, at least. I think what we're seeing a lot of places is the political will behind what we've seen, the policies we've seen over the last couple of years is starting to fade. And I don't think that it can be re-energized. I think that you know the large majority of people who believed that the policies were necessary and we really did have to do 15 days to slow the spread, I think those people are even getting a little tired of it, uh, warranted or not. I think some of those people may still feel the same about COVID, but just don't have the energy anymore to push for big policies or police masks or things like that. I think COVID as a policy phenomena will start to fade away over the next year. I don't think, by the way, COVID itself is going to fade away within the next year, probably ever. I think it's a, it's a new seasonal, not purely seasonal either, but it's it's a new uh, virus that we'll just have. And in 40 years, we'll still have COVID and people will still get COVID. I don't know what exactly things look like in terms of quarantine or not. My suspicion is people won't quarantine, you know, in the long run for things like COVID. It'll be just like a flu, not because they're the same, but because I think that's generally how we manage respiratory illnesses that are viruses. But yeah, I see this as a policy becoming less and less important. I do think that there are people still trying to rent-seek teachers unions, trying to get out of work for another few weeks, things like that. And I think there will always be a little bit of that, but I I just don't think parents are going to be willing to stomach it anymore. I think Democrats know that if they run on allowing teachers unions to take off weeks and weeks every year, they're not going to get reelected. And I think that is just becoming more and more clear. So I think that COVID's political energy is dying. And I'm willing to make that bold declaration. I could be wrong. It'll be very obvious if my uh, prediction here is wrong. So,
0: Yeah. I might even be more slightly optimistic than, than Peter. We might be in about the same spot, but I I think it's the data that will show itself and reveal itself to, to most people that they're going to get Omicron this month and they're going to have a cold and they're going to say, Oh, I, I, have had worse colds than this in the past. And they're going to start to be desensitized to all of the rush of, oh, the spread of cases, the spread of cases when when hospitalizations and deaths are are staying flat or even going down. So I'd like to th- think, and maybe it's the econ- economists biased in me, biased that uh, the data will win, that our empirical evidence will, will start to win over the show, even despite the media machine that keeps yelling at us that... Uh, we need to vaccinate. I, I listened to a piece on NPR this morning, reluctantly, and it was uh, looking at Israel and Canada and the United States. Oh, and France, sorry. They mentioned Canada, but France was the main one. And so I was shocked, and again, I shouldn't be, but I was shocked that the, the way it went out was Israel's super vaxxed and they're still having big cases. France is super vaxxed and they still have big cases. And then They come to the U.S. and we're like, the U.S. isn't as vaxxed as these uh, places. And so what can we do to get more people vaccinated? And it's like they're having worse outcomes. I mean, it was just staring you right in the face that if if you were any sort of journalist or reporter that was, was doing this interview, it was staring you right in the face that we shouldn't follow those that have done more that it's having less of an effect. I, I just I couldn't even believe it. It was like the most natural thing of where this conversation should go, but yet it went to, what do you think the Biden administration can do to get more people vaxxed in the United States? And, and even though the evidence and what they said was just staring them right in the face. Justin, given what you've just said, what makes you think that the <laughs> evident, that uh, evidence
2: and facts are going to win out then here? I'm just saying that because I would love to be as optimistic as I think both of you are. But one thing that has really shaken my optimism is watching what I consider to just be like mass, like insanity, this kind of idea that if a vaccine doesn't work, we sprinkle more vaccine on it. You know, there's data coming out of Denmark right now that seems to show that vaccines are even after, you know, 60 days or something, have negative efficacy against Omicron? And the answer to that is, well, I guess maybe we need one every three months now. So, yeah, I asked a question. I,
0: I think it'll be the political machine that the administration to get votes will, if I'm right, by the way, that, that I'm saying the majority of people will be tired of it and, and follow the data and learn that they didn't get as sick as maybe they thought they would, that their fears were, you know, too strong. And then that's how one side or the other is gonna get is going to get the vote. And so that will drive part of that optimism for me.
3: <laughs> Peter, I don't know if yeah. you have
0: different thoughts. For,
3: for me, I mean, it's hard to compare anything to COVID because it's unprecedented in a lot of ways what our government did. But if we had to compare like big population-wide meme scares that maybe even more baseless, like I think of, and of course I'm biased because this is my research field, but like the overpopulation fears, the, that, you know, Paul Ehrlich was going on Johnny Carson and saying that the UK would cease to be a country in 20 years because they're all going to starve to death. And like, this is serious Stanford press, you know, scientist here. And what happens to that? It just actually faded away. They passed a lot of bad policies. They funded a lot of stupid programs. And then eventually people just got bored and stopped talking about it. I think that's kind of going to happen. I think people are going to get bored, stop talking about it. It's going to take a little bit longer because this was bigger than that. And there was actually more of a basis in COVID than there is in that. But I I just think people's energy for it will die. I don't know.
2: Peter, people are still super gluing themselves to the London Metro uh, in the name of Extinction Rebellion and still going on the news and saying there's a population bomb. And we're still taking our shoes off at airports because of Richard Reid, the shoe bomber. I mean, my worry is that like these things actually don't go away. They're just so sticky.
3: Yeah, I, I I do I do think there will be some certain aspects of this will stick around. I I don't know exactly what that looks like. Yeah, I think that's a fair point. I just think that relative to today, I think well people have less energy to support you know these different movements as they try to like get out of work and school. It's very costly for us to skip work and school every year a whole society. I just don't think that whatever political will is out there is strong enough to overcome that cost.
0: All right. Well, this looks like a good spot for our break. When we come back, I do want to talk about the uh, religious community churches and shutdowns on what you guys think their response would be this upcoming year. There was a lot of religious freedom issues and other things that came up. And then of course we need to sneak in something about the economy and and that'll bring up maybe some employment and inflation. So we'll be back in just a bit.
1: By 2030, the Gordney Institute will be known for its alumni, supporters, and participants who incorporate economic understanding with their faith in their careers, vocations, communities, and personal lives. The Institute will be a nationally recognized source for knowledge and contribution to students' experience society's understanding for private and public solutions to poverty and the overlaps of markets, governance, and faith. Young audience will look to the Institute for challenging and engaging in education on faith and economics.
0: The Boarding Institute at Ottawa University is the best place in the Midwest for students interested in freedom and justice and its impact on human flourishing. If you or someone you know is looking for a college like that, contact Peter or Russ or Justin today.
1: Don't forget to check out our show notes for this episode at podcast.123povertysucks.org. All
0: right, welcome back and our other graduate assistant happened to slink in the door at the half, so Luke, welcome back. Thank after you. After break. So, we're trying to make some predictions, so feel free to jump in here as as we move along. Um, I wanted to start off with this this church question and and I just I wonder if the church response is going to be different. And this could be Christian or non-Christian religious type gatherings, I think is what I'm thinking of is, will they be stronger? Did they learn from this lockdown thing that they were, that they, you know, toppled over or got pushed around or will they just fall in step the way they did before? I tend to think, and again, we might be a little bit, different here in Kansas. People do get vaccinations. Some people don't get vaccinations. Some small towns in Kansas pretended the virus didn't exist and and some took it very seriously. So I I feel like we have a pretty libertarian-ish approach to handling the virus. Now that's in Ottawa, Kansas is where we're at, town of Uh, 13,000. We're not in uh, Lawrence, where Justin lives, or, or Kansas City and, and Wichita. So some of the bigger towns, I think, had reactions similar to other big towns. and But part of that's just being a small town. I mean, we, we might have different circumstances and different reasons to operate differently. So I just feel like the faith community would, would take a stronger stance, I think, against being pushed around. And I don't know if, if Peter, if you have any different thoughts on that, but I think, you know, God pulled us through. Look at that. We, here we are alive. We didn't, we didn't obliterate.
3: Yeah. I, I just think that most of the places where the faith communities are going to be unwilling to, you know, jump through new hoops, we could say. Most of those places, there's not going to be enforcement anyways. I, I think like in, in Ottawa, if the governor came in and said religious services can't meet, you know, tomorrow, I think probably some churches would still meet. And I think probably no one would care. So I, that, that tends to be my thought on it is I think everyone took it seriously at the beginning because they didn't want to cause problems, but I think people have their formed opinions now and it would look a little bit different this time around.
0: I also see a different, a difference in how people are approaching it. Like some of the vulnerable populations of some of my older church members that are friends, you know, they'll, they'll come with mask on, right? So they're, they're, again, handling it the way they think it's appropriate, given the information and the way, let's say, the way the church handles things. They just act accordingly. And that, that, I think that's the whole premise of the of, uh, liber- classical liberal thought is that let, let people make their own choice as long as there's uh, information available that they, they can have to make those decisions. So I, I kind of see that materializing, I guess, over the last year, and I, I hope that'll continue.
2: I think I, I agree with both of you in that I, I especially think that absent the political machine, you know, religion and, and especially local churches are where a lot of people go for community and, and leadership, especially social leadership. I also agree with Peter that if there were these mandates, there would be a lot of places that the enforcement just didn't occur. But the other side of that coin is that I think that if enforcement of very, very top down things increases, or if, you know, if federal mandates become more strict, I think that is the place where you would expect to see tension, because that's where you would expect to see a local leadership coming into conflict with a, uh, with a federal leadership. And I think you see that now in places like Canada, where you can see, you know, pastors who keep their churches open being arrested on the side of the road, that kind of thing, which is, you know, just happened last week.
0: All right, well, let's move into some other areas here. Uh, the first area I want to hit on is the Super Bowl, because Peter just has some sort of fabulous prediction that I'm dying to hear about. So uh, Super Bowl predictions, Peter?
3: The Packers win. That's it. That's, <laughs> that's the prediction. The Packers win the Super Bowl. I'm not a Packers fan. This isn't because Aaron Rodgers recently came out with an Ayn Rand's book on his shelf or anything like that.
0: Whatever. But that's You're totally biased that way. All of a sudden he's an Aaron Rodgers fan.
3: I don't even think I'm an Aaron Rodgers fan, but the Packers are going to win the Super Bowl. That's my prediction.
0: (laughs) Yeah, I uh, saw one of Aaron Rodgers quotes was, unquestioned science is propaganda. And I'm paraphrasing it a little bit. It was, I don't know if it was a meme or something I saw, but science that can't be questioned is propaganda. And so I think we've seen a little bit of that. Um, And I hate to get down to another COVID rabbit trail here, but this was more of an Aaron Rodgers rabbit trail, maybe so. Aaron Rodgers is a fellow Berkeley alum. I was there when. I oh, was there. that's right, but he yeah. uh, is ashamed. But he's ashamed of that apparently because I heard I watched the Packer game the other night when they killed the Vikings, and he put his community college as his college when they when they gave the introductions that that stuck out my mind I don't know if he's been doing that for years or not but I I just
2: noticed it for the first time it really stuck out
0: to me so he's apparently not too proud of that Berkeley education maybe so I
2: think it's just because he doesn't want to be associated with me (laughs) (laughs) could be could be
0: all right. I don't so even let's... know who's
2: in the Super Bowl this year. Is it Packers. <laughs> well,
0: or... It's not determined yet. I, I knew oh, okay, that good. Even when Peter's talking Super Bowl, I'm like, these two don't even do football, as far as I know, for the most part. So it, it's not going to be my Vikings. It might be my. Son, I, I, but...
3: I follow football. Kirk Cousins isn't bad, you know. Vikings aren't, you know, in a terrible spot, but yeah, no, I, I'd like it to be the Chiefs. I think it's going to be Packers. I think Aaron Rodgers is the best and most consistent quarterback this season. No interception. I mean, he still quarterback, low interceptions. I think that's the Packers. That's my take. Well, Chiefs Packers Super Bowl, you're on
0: and I will bet I'm on the Chiefs because I can't back the Pack uh, as a Viking fan, Purple Blood. So um, I will be going Chiefs all the way on that one.
2: I'm going to do an underdog vote for the uh, Cincinnati Bengals Oh, after they – Conquered the Chiefs this
0: past week. Conquering or got by with the referees. Off. That's a whole different story. So <laughs> we'll try not to get sidetracked there. <laughs> so what about the midterms? Peter, uh, you want to get back to some predictions here? Maybe the midterms would be a good way to kick us off.
3: Yeah, this is even easier than the Super Bowl. Republicans win both the House and the Senate. I think that that's pretty clear. And it's pretty common. My justification on this is fairly straightforward. When a president of a certain party wins the next two years, it tends to be that the House and Senate, so long as like the seats work out right, which they do happen to this time for the Senate, both swing back to the other party. That's just a pretty consistent thing that happens. I don't see the trend breaking here, especially with how relatively unpopular Biden has been compared to what I thought he would be. So I think both, uh, both parts of the legislature swing red.
2: I second that for pretty much the same reason.
3: Yeah. Yeah.
0: I think uh, it happened to Trump the same way things swung. I mean, it's it's happened for lots of presidents along the way. Well, okay. Since we have a couple of economists here, let's talk about the economy. This inflation thing is not going to go away very fast. I don't look at it that closely, but since we're having the problems we do now, I can't imagine it coming back down to four. By August, uh, so that's eight months. I guess that's a tighter prediction than I thought I was going to make. But so I think we are above, probably five, four to five, but at least four for sure by August. So I, I think we're going to see the persistent uh, persistency of inflation continue to go. I haven't seen any indication. And Peter, you wrote an article recently on this, and you might have more fresh comments from the Fed on on hand, but I haven't seen any strength from the Fed really to say that they're going to pull a Volcker and really clamp down on things. What's your thoughts on this, Peter?
3: They have been a little bit more hawkish recently, and they keep saying that they're going to be more hawkish in the future. I Because <laughs> the economy is my subject, I'm least comfortable making predictions about it. I'd much <laughs> rather make predictions about things that I have nothing to do with, like sports. but Like Super Bowl. Yeah, but if I had to guess, I, I'd say something similar to you, Russ. I mean, the key thing to keep that I keep in mind is since January 2020, the money supply has increased by 39%. And I don't think they're going to decrease the money supply. So that leaves me with over the next few years, we're going to have to have 39% high prices. That doesn't mean at, at any single point inflation is going to be 39%. That's kind of the important thing because inflation builds on itself, right? And so it could be some combination of, I don't know, 8%, 7%, you know, here and there over several years that brings you to 39%. So I don't think it runs out of control at this point. It doesn't seem like we're going to get there. I think maybe we will have some hawkish policies here and that might hurt for a little bit. So that's kind of my prediction is the the Fed gets a little bit more conservative, maybe not quite Greenspan, but uh, they're definitely going to dial things back a bit, I think.
0: Well, if we're in concert on that, then what, what's the impact on GDP and income growth? I mean, I just see it being nothing but sluggish, especially given the unknowns of pulling out of whatever lockdown modes, even though the CDC went from 10 to five days. And I think the labor market is a big question. It seems like people are just bailing out of the labor force. And that's what's keeping the labor market unemployment rates nice and low is that people are just saying, ah? Eh, I don't really need a job I can, I can stay in my mom and dad's basement for a little while longer so culturally i think we're in a in a weird spot so i don't i don't see economic growth un, unlike what biden said the other day that it's strong as ever and um, his rhetoric is just unbelievable sometimes i can't believe what he brings up
3: yeah i think you're right russ the story of the next few years i think is It's going to be the low growth, maybe a half a percent, a percent, something like that, which may not sound bad to listeners, but uh, when you compound growth over years, it actually makes a huge difference if you're off by 1% or half percent or 2%, uh, which we are, you know, 3% would be a really healthy rate of growth. Uh, Again, I'm just guessing, but we're half a percent, 2%. I mean, our capital stock is lower because we consumed some, like Russ, you said that people aren't going back to work. I just don't think we live in as productive of a world as we did, you know, three years ago when we had really decent economic growth. So I don't see that getting better. In fact, I think that's going to be a major issue.
0: Justin, since the economy is somewhat out of your ballpark, this is like a Super Bowl question to you. What do you think? Sure.
2: We're going to see higher inflation. Um, I don't see I don't see that coming down soon. It's, and it's even more problematic I think because I think we're going to see some very big problems in the energy markets, especially through the winter and uh, through the summer in California. They're not shutting in the energy market. We have this really weird fight going on in uh, environmental circles right now, which is actually good to see happening. But some environmentalists are finally coming around to uh, nuclear and uh, think that that, uh, that there just is no way if we want to get rid of coal, for instance, that we can rely purely on wind or solar, or things like that. Um, And what you see is in a lot of states where they are getting rid of their coal plants um, and getting rid of their nuclear plants, then they have to just buy um, electricity that's generated by natural gas or coal from other states. And so what's happening there is like the supply of energy is just being constricted. And I think that when you have a constriction of supply, in addition to, you know, a multiplication of the money supply, you have this constriction on both sides of that supply and demand curve. And so you're going to see prices go up. And I wouldn't be surprised to see rationing and price controls in the energy market in the coming year.
0: Yeah. So that's kind of a double whammy from the administration, uh, shutting down of the pipeline and other factors have caused energy prices to go up. And then all the deficit spending causes inflation to go up. So we just have the the administration doing everything to push inflation the direction that we would predict in positive economics, that it's going to go one direction up. But then of course them saying that now inflation is the top dog concern of theirs. And uh, I suspect they'll talk out of one side of the mouth and do something with the other.
3: Yeah. And I think this ties in with political predictions. I think part of the reason that Democrats will have issue over the next two years is the a lot of members of the base, not not the base as a whole, but a lot of the members of the base are these very, they, they're climate voters, right? That's their big issue of concern. And so I think what we're going to see is the, the pressure to allow people to have access to cheap energy is going to be great enough that I don't think the Biden administration is going to be able to shutter a lot of the things that they've said that they're going to shutter or have shutter. They might have to reopen some stuff uh, precisely for the reasons Justin talked about. Energy is already at very uh, expensive levels right now. I can't see the administration letting it get much worse. So I, I predict that they're going to fold on a lot of these things before prices get too high, and there's going to be political fallout for them for that. But that's my uh, my prediction.
2: Maybe that the like the kind of fragile coalition between climate voters and the working class has to come apart.
3: Yeah, yeah, I I, th- I think that's a. decent prediction yeah
0: well i thought it was a telltale sign that they were biden was chasing after the meat producers here i can't remember when he did this in the last few weeks anyway and maybe it was even more recently that there's only four main meat suppliers of uh, in the u.s that make up 50 percent of the meat production and they're putting the squeeze on grocery stores and they're just being greedy all of a sudden and um you know jacking up prices for no good reason really a market that has 50% with four, four liters in the only making 50% in terms of a concentration ratio, isn't that high. And there's definitely some decent competition in that market for a relatively homogeneous good of cattle and the beef products that come off of cattle. So it's just unbelievable that he'd be chasing after that meat industry as part of uh, the woes of society that were really coming about from policies on what we just discussed with energy and other deficit spending efforts, can I play devil's advocate on this one? Sure, because
2: uh, I think I think Thomas Massey had a good tweet about this recently when he says, "Look, the big four actually do kind of act like a cartel, and one of the you know so." They are cutting prices that they're paying to farmers while simultaneously raising prices that they're charging to supermarkets. But the way we fix this is to pass this legislation that he had sponsored or whatever that makes it much easier for local producers to be able to sell in in supermarkets, which is apparently extremely difficult for local producers to do right now. And so look, to to the degree that the big four are acting like a cartel. The way you want to solve that is to uh, allow more competition, not to do whatever idiotic idea is going to, you know, either price control or rationing or trying to do that kind of thing.
0: Yeah, that's a good point. As usual, it, it is oftentimes the government that created these positions of power in an oligopoly or cartel-ish, like you say, to the degree that it is what it is. It's it's due to that. I would totally agree. So. All right, well, uh, any other big predictions here or is it time to wrap this one up? Bitcoin price.
3: <laughs> Bitcoin, yes. Hmm. 3% higher than it is today.
0: Oh, I got to be at 60 since I got my long-term. I'm, I'm 60 by December as would be my guesstimate at this point. I I've, I think I've told listeners before, I do have a long position in Bitcoin and it's a very small long position, but I I think Bitcoin will get to hundred, but that won't be for potentially, I don't know, what did I predict before? Five to 10 years or something. So I'm in it for the long haul.
2: I predict we touched six figures this year. And I, I would predict that the end of the year, the year average is in the, between 70 and 90.
0: Oh, I hope so. so. That'll help my long position. The ever bullish Bitcoiner, Justin Clark. You've heard it here first on this podcast. We'll replay it back in December, and we'll see. We'll see where Bitcoin's at. And I'm a philosopher. This is not investment advice. <laughs> That's right. And they already know it's economists, so they can't take any of our predictions for, for better than the the weather in two
3: weeks. So. All right. If, he, well, <laughs> if he's wrong, you can't sue him in philosophy court. <laughs> all right.
0: Well, this has been a prediction of the Gordon prediction, <laughs> a presentation of the Gorton Institute here at Ottawa University. I'd like, to thank you all for listening. Five-star rating helps other people find our podcast and otherwise pass it along to your friends, give them a good old fashioned email. That's what it takes. Uh, so we're glad you're here. And other than that, be fruitful and multiply. Thanks.